So we're going to be in Matthew 17 today. Matthew 17. And we're going to start in verse 22. So Matthew 17, 22. It says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. And so, a little bit of context about this story. This is, uh, Matthew is one of four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, and it's probably one of the harder ones for us to understand because Matthew's primary audience is Jews, and so he's assuming a lot of knowledge about the Old Testament. And at this point in Jesus's life, he's done many things, right, to indicate that he is the long-awaited Messiah of the Jewish people. And, uh, and, and at this time, the, the Jews would assume that Jesus would be here coming to deliver them from Roman oppression. So Rome was, or, or, or at the time, Israel was occupied by Rome. So it would be like if a different country conquered us and is now occupying and living among us and ruling over us. And so Jesus is coming and the Jews are thinking, okay, finally, our king has come to deliver us from the oppression of the Romans. And so they're, they're ready to like take up arms and fight, but then here comes Jesus, a little bit different a little bit different than they expected. And just one chapter earlier, Simon Peter has declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so I think it's important to understand that the disciples didn't know all that we know about Jesus at this time. It's slowly being revealed to them. And so when Peter said this, and it was confirmed by Jesus himself, this was like new information, right, that they are processing in real time. And when Jesus starts to explain the implications of this, the fact that he will be a suffering servant rather than a conquering king has massive implications for the disciples themselves. You see, if Jesus comes as this conquering king, they're like, okay, well, we're going to be at the right hand of this warrior. We're going to take some people out, and then we're going to free the people of Israel. It's going to be a great thing. But if, if, if their rabbi is this suffering servant, that has massive implications on what their life will look like as well. And I think we're watching them kind of have a hard time wrapping their head around who Jesus actually is and what he came to do. And so in today's story, we have Jesus' second prediction of his death and resurrection, followed by this like really weird, seemingly unnecessary story about this fish and getting a coin or a shekel out of the fish's mouth. And, uh, but, I, but I think just like stories in the Bible, it carries a much deeper meaning, and we're going to explore, explore that today. But Colin Mackey calls this the story of death and taxes, which is like a riff on Ben, ben Franklin's quote, in, the, in this world there's nothing can be said to be certain except death, 
and taxes, right? And so that's the story today. So we're going to jump right into verse 22. So as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And so again, you have to like step into the disciples' psyche in the moment. They're like, this is new-ish information that they are learning. And so there's a couple of things here. There's a rhythmic way in which this is written that should be really cause for pause for us. It says the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So the Son of Man, the Messiah, the anointed and prophesied King of the Old Testament is about to be delivered into the hands of the very people that he came to save. And so it's, it's interesting And the Greek word here for delivered has two possible meanings. Some translations put the word betrayed here instead, which is equally accurate. And the point is that this might be the first reference that somebody close to Jesus is going to betray him. And so you can sense the disciples are like hearing this for the first time. And it's not clear yet that Judas would be the one to betray Jesus, but this could be Jesus' first allusion to that fact. And they're, they're hearing this, they're, they're processing this, and it could play into how they reacted. And so in verse 23, we see this, it says, they will, so Jesus continues, they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. You see, in the first prediction, when Jesus predicted his death the first time, Peter pipes up and say, says, far be it from you, Lord. He rebukes Jesus, which by the way, is never a good idea, like don't do that. But Peter does it anyway. And notice this time, though, Peter doesn't pipe up. He doesn't rebuke Jesus. It's as if he's he's accepting this, right? And there seems to be a growing realization by the disciples that Jesus isn't asking the disciples to like, hey, guys, let's get together. You know, what do you think the best plan is? Okay, that sounds pretty good. We'll take that. He's not collaborating with them. He's telling them how it's going to be. He's not, he's not asking for their input. And the response now by all the disciples, including Peter, is that they were greatly distressed. Mark and Luke say the disciples, they don't understand, which kind of gives us insight into their distress. You see, Jesus didn't stutter or hesitate when making this statement about what's going to happen to him, that he is going to die. But you can sense the disciples are like, what does this mean? What does it mean for us? What is this whole resurrection thing about? Who's going to betray him? And, and, and maybe the more deeper philosophical question, why does it have to happen this way? Why does the Son of Man have to die? You know, it's interesting. I uh, have an opportunity. I have a friend of mine who's, a, who's an atheist. And, um, and we're, we're good buddies, and we talk often about uh, spirituality. And he actually grew up in the church, but uh, after a while, just just walked away from the faith, and um, and he asked one of the one of the things that he stumbles over is this question, like why did it have to happen this way? Why did why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forgive us? Why did all this have to happen? And so in that conversation, I remember referencing Romans three, but then I walked away and I was like, oh, I should have brought up Proverbs seventeen. I, I kind of forgot, you know, and I wish I went back. But here's my chance. I'm gonna bring up Proverbs seventeen. So there's. Proverbs 17, 15 presents a real problem for us. And it says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So to shorten this, it says, He who justifies the wicked 
is an abomination to the Lord. So how does God justify us who have rebelled against him, right? He, he, he created us in love, didn't have to create us, created us in love, gave us air in our lungs, and he said, hey, come live in this way that contributes most to human flourishing in the world. We looked at God and said, no, we're going to do our own thing. So that, by definition, makes us wicked. And so how does God justify us who are wicked without becoming an abomination to himself? There's a real problem. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. God cannot justify us who are wicked without becoming an abomination to himself. So how does he do this? It's the Sunday school answer, guys. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So Romans 3.23, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because of Jesus, God can remain a just and good judge while also justifying and forgiving us who have sinned against him. Because Jesus took the punishment that we deserved on the cross. That's what he did for us. He made a way where there was no way. And this is the reason why it had to be this way. But you've got to understand, the disciples didn't know any of that yet. Like, they're, they're processing this in real time. So you can, you can sense their distress. Like, what is happening here? Jesus is coming, and he's, he's supposed to be delivering us, but now he's going to die? What is that all about? And then we get to verse 24, which kind of like changes things a little bit. We're kind of moving in a different part of the story. In verse 24, it says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter, here we go, Peter again, and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Which is a weird way to ask that question anyways. But Capernaum, so the reason they went to Peter is because Capernaum was Peter's hometown, and the, the disciples were likely staying either at Peter's house or one of his relatives. And so normally these kind of trapping questions are directed at Jesus, but Peter gets the privilege of fielding this one. And so this two drachma tax is the tax that every Jew paid that was in support of all the expenses of the Jewish temple. And it was common for every Jew to participate in this. But you got to understand, especially how Jesus has approached the Jewish leaders at the time, that this was a loaded question, right, that, that Peter was fielding at the moment. So they asked this question, and, and, and we don't really know. Like, I, don't think, I think Peter's sitting there like, I don't know what Jesus would say to this, but I'm going to do the best I can to answer it. So verse 25, he says so confidently, yes. You know, and you're, you're like, what does that even mean? Because it says, does your teacher not pay the tax? So is he saying, yes, no, he doesn't pay the tax, or yes, he does pay the tax? I don't even think Peter knew. Like, like, he's just like trying to answer it as quick as he, as he can and like get out of there. And I think it's also possible, because we know this about Peter, that he'll say just about anything to get out of trouble. And so I think it could have been that. Maybe, maybe he just knew, you know, Jesus pays the tax, so that's what he's saying. I don't know. But either way, Peter goes back inside, and Jesus meets him there, right? So Peter's fielding this difficult question, and Jesus, apparently here, overhearing this conversation, uses this as a teaching moment for Peter. So, and when he came back to the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? Simon and Peter, same person. From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? So 
Simon Peter comes back in, and he's already stressed out. And he's not met with, like, Jesus being like, don't worry about it, bro. Like, we got, we got the bag over here with the coins. Like, just go ahead and give him the coin. We'll be good to go. No, he, he uses this as a teaching moment. So he's met with this parable, right, by Jesus. Like, thanks a lot, Jesus. But his point in asking this question to Peter is to draw comparisons from how taxes would work if the government were a monarchy and the implications that that has on the king's family versus everyone else. Right? And verse 26, when he said, from others, then Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. The sons are free. So Peter answers this almost rhetorical question to say that kings don't collect taxes from their sons. They collect taxes from everyone else. And Jesus carries this logic forward to make a really profound statement to say, then the sons and daughters are free. The sons of the king don't have to pay the tax. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to unpack that a little bit more, but I'm going to do that in just a minute. I'm going to come back to that. So Jesus walks Peter through this parable to show how and why he is ex- exempt from the temple tax. But So Jesus doesn't have to pay the tax. He's the son of God. He's the son of the king. He doesn't have to pay the tax. But what does he do? Instead of that, using that privilege to just not pay the tax, he does verse 27. He says this. He uses his privilege. He says, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that, give it to them for me and for yourself. And so he uses his privilege, like he, he, there's this privilege that he doesn't have to pay the tax, but as to not give offense, he pays the tax anyways. And this story is bizarre, like for a couple of reasons. So first of all, it's interesting that Jesus is concerned about giving offense. Like since when does Jesus care about offending people? He's very, he's been plenty offensive up until now. But maybe the difference here is that there could have been real consequences had Jesus not paid the tax that he wasn't ready for. And I think it could be also a demonstration to us and to his disciples in terms of how we're supposed to carry out our mission. So we as Jesus followers should do nothing that causes intentional offense towards other people. The the Bible talks about we are to live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way, be all things to all people that we might save some, as far as it depends on us, be at peace with everyone. That's the kind of people that we're supposed to be. The only offense that we are okay causing, and even promised by Jesus to experience, is the offense that some people take when we share the good news of Jesus with them. That's the only thing we are okay with causing intentional offense for. And to some, and the Bible is very clear, to some it will be a fragrance of life leading to life, to others a fragrance of death leading to death, but we are the fragrance of Jesus, and we carry that with us. And that is the only thing that we are okay with offending with. But this particular occasion wasn't about sharing the good news of the kingdom with these people. It was about living peaceably with them long enough to give the most people the the greatest chance 
to receive his love. And that's what Jesus is all about. He wants to give the most people the greatest chance to receive his love. And so secondly, we see Jesus instructing Peter to gather the money in this like hilariously ridiculous way. Like why, Jesus? The whole fish and the the shekel in his mouth, like what's going on there? And I can just imagine like Peter doing this. And you don't know, right? You don't know what his mindset was when Jesus said, hey, go go cast a hook. Because like Peter, so he's going there. He's like, okay, Jesus, I'll go do this thing. And he's walking there. And Jesus, or Peter's not used to fishing with a hook, by the way. He normally fishes with nets. And so I don't even know if he knew what he was doing. He probably just had like this hook on a string. He goes to the local watering hole and throws the hook in there, right? And, and sure enough, well, he's got, got a fish. And he's probably not doing this. He's probably like more doing this. And so he pulls it up and he's got the fish. And he's like, okay, Jesus, like, is this really going to happen? And so he looks in the fish's mouth and he's like, oh, Jesus, you know, like, <laughs> he's just like, oh, you know, so, so I could just see him like giddy with excitement, like he's got the fish in his hand, he's like going back, and, he, and everybody around him is like, what is, this, what is this dude doing with this fish? And so he makes it all the way back to the house, and the disciples are there, and Jesus is there too, and he walks back in, and he's, he kind of like changes his face to like fake him out, so he comes back in, he's like, he's got the fish. And they're like, what happened? And he goes, ah, you know, like. And it's all just bust out in laughter, right? And it's just this, I think it's just this beautiful moment, right? And I think we can approach Jesus in a way where he's like unapproachable. And he's just like this stoic figure, right? That, that just tells us to do things and we want to follow him. But no, he created this culture of friendship and camaraderie where these guys are telling this story and laughing hysterically over a fire later on after Jesus has died, resurrected, and ascended. Right? This, he, he's, he's creating the culture that he wants the church ultimately to be. And D.A. Carson draws a little bit more depth from the story. He says, perhaps too, in this story, we are reminded again of Jesus' humility, who so controls nature and its power that powers that he still storms and multiplies food now reminds Peter of that power by this miracle while nevertheless remaining so humble that he would not needlessly cause offense. This is our wonderful Savior that we follow and serve. He wants to give the most people the greatest chance to receive his love. And I think this story shows that Jesus is fun, He's witty, he's approachable, he's also challenging, but he's caring, loving, he's purposeful. I don't even know if this is a real theology, but like the normality of Jesus. Like Jesus was perhaps the most normal person that you'll ever be around in terms of his approachability. Like he, he, he was, I mean, just the, the, you can feel the sense of just camaraderie that he created. Like, he didn't have to do this this way. But he chose, like, there's no, you can sense, like, the sense of humor of God, like, just coming through. And the fact that he's just so enjoyable. Like, Jesus, the, I mean, they literally had to pull children off of Jesus. That would not be true if he wasn't enjoyable to be around. Like, that's the kind of Savior that we serve and love and who loves us and so with that being said i've got a number of takeaways from the story now these are these are soft tosses to all you 
Christians out there, this has been kind of a silent room. So I'm going to give you permission to speak that back to me a little bit. And so these are like phrases that are lessons from this story where you can, you know, if you feel comfortable, you can give me like a mm-hmm or like a hallelujah. Or if you want to do it like the good old Baptist, amen. You know, like you can do that too. So you guys ready? Soft tosses. Y'all ready? A little bit of feedback here. So because of this story, he shows. Thank you. He's not a God of coincidence. He's a God of providence. That's why we call it, so I've changed from calling the pot luck, the pot providence, right? Because really God's in control, right? God has a specific plan and good works for each of us to walk in. And it was true for Peter in this situation. You guys ready for the next one? He's not a God of convenience. He's a God of obedience. Like that one. Preach it. He could have just given Peter the money to pay the tax. But he cared more about Peter's obedience and faith than he did making things easy for Peter. Following God is simple, but it's it's not always easy. He didn't make it easy for Peter, but ultimately he gave him something which contributed to an unwavering faith that we see Peter demonstrate later on in his life. They gave them this experience. And that is what happens when we respond to God in obedience. He gives us those faith stories that bolster our faith for what he's called us to do in the future. Got the next one. You ready? You don't reap what you know. You reap what you sow. Peter, Peter knew that Jesus was powerful enough to do this, but he didn't experience it for himself until he stepped out in faith. Right? He sowed into it. And then this one's so true, but we need the reminder all the time. Money is not our provider. God is our provider. Everything we have, we have received from him. And therefore, financial generosity, giving first to the church and other to, king, to other kingdom initiatives, should be the first line item in our budgets. I'm so proud to be a part of this family of churches that when we gathered for Celebration Southeast, uh, I guess it was about a month ago, that we took up an offering, and it was a room of about 250 people of over $215,000 that went to help build a school in the second poorest nation in the world. That's Jesus' love changing the world. And it happens through financial generosity. Incredible. But I want to circle back, right, to what he said to the disciples and what that means for us today. Because he said, yeah, I'll pay the tax, even though I don't have to. Because in the kingdom of God, the sons and daughters are free. They're free. The sons and daughters don't have to pay the tax. But what does that mean for Jesus, and what does that mean for us? So first, we have what this means for Jesus is that Jesus is the Son of God. This might have been a parable about Jesus as much as it was a parable about the disciples and us. He is the Son of God the Father, and the temple was built with money that God provided the people of God so that they could give it back to him. Jesus was exempt from the tax because he isn't just another Jew. He's a son. And even more than that, he's the Son of God. And that's what this demonstrates. Number two, more so what it means for us, is that we are identified with Jesus, and therefore we are sons. 
We are sons. The disciples are starting to understand the nature of their relationship to God through Jesus in light of who Jesus is. It's not just that Jesus is their rabbi and they want to like hear really well what he says and like emulate what he does. They, they are starting to understand that they are identified with Jesus in every single way. So Jesus paying Peter's tax is illustrating the fact that we are a part of the royal family. Because Jesus is a son, we are sons and daughters as well. And I say that we're sons and daughters, and that's true, but it's also true to say that we, are, that we all, male and female, are sons. And that means that we are identified with the Son of God. That's why we're sons. We're co-heirs to the throne of grace. We are identified with Jesus in his perfect life, which is credited to us. So when God sees us, he doesn't see our mistakes. He sees Jesus' perfect life credited to our account and therefore fully accepts us in his love no matter what. That's what Jesus gives to us. We're identified with Jesus in his death. We die to ourselves. We turn from our sin. We say no to our flesh, which is, is really just the Bible's way, way of saying our disordered desires, the things in us that want to lead us to a place where it, it'll destroy us. We say no to the world, which is our disordered desires that have been normalized in society. And we say no to the devil. So we die to ourselves. We die to our version of our life. And then we're identified with Jesus in the new life that he offers us. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. We get a new heart with new desires. He changes us from the inside out. And our identity and our security is fully found in the finished work of Jesus. And we are resurrected with him, which means that when we die, our spirits are with God instantaneously. And on the last day, our bodies will be resurrected to live on the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever. Amen. Like that's what it means, the fact that we are identified with Jesus. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. What is identity what this identity in Jesus means for us today is that we're set free from the things that hold us down. And we're set free, actually, to discover what God has called us to do. Or in other words, our true self, our true calling, like the reason why God put us here on the earth. And we know kind of like the general reason why, but I'm talking about the individual person, why God has put each one of us here, and what specifically has he called us to do. You see, our culture tells us to discover this, to be true to yourself. And you're like, okay, like that's not all bad, but it's kind of vague, right, to really be helpful to us. When the world tells us to do this, it's kind of giving us free reign to find our identity and wherever our heart kind of leads us to go, which I think for some people ends up, ends up taking them down some dark paths. But So... Even there's even there's good things, there's not so good things you can find your identity in, but when we find our identity in like things like our job or our kids or our bank account or our family of origin, or even in today's times, our sexuality or our gender, our successes sometimes we find our identity, our failures, we find our identity which holds us back. We find our identity in our, our discipline level, 
like ability to be good Christians or whatever it is. Our fitness level, right? Are you, are you lifting more lately? Maybe even like our Instagram likes. So what the world approves about what we're doing or not doing, or even the, even the Instagram version of that. We get lost in the endless pursuit of allowing our own disordered desires to define us and allowing other, what other people think about us to define us rather than going to the true source of our identity, which is Jesus. I do think there is a journey that God wants to send us on to discover our true self. But we don't discover it by this vague piece of advice that just says, be true to yourself. I would argue, and I think the Bible argues, that we discover it as we grow in our relationship with God. And so Paul, who is, is one of the writers of the New Testament, would have struggled very much to find his identity in his performance. Or the fact that he was the most committed Jew, right? Or he would find his identity in his education, that he's the most educated. And then he met Jesus. And he realized this profound truth that changed his life. 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. The grace of God and nothing else, Jesus and nothing else, identifies us. Our identity in Jesus doesn't just get us into heaven. It doesn't just set us free from our sin. It doesn't just exempt us from the temple tax. It becomes the basis through which we discover our truest self and our true calling. It gives us the God confidence to step into all that God has for us in this life. And I'm going to read a really long hand quote, so bear with me. It's by David Benner, and he wrote this great little book called The Gift of Being Yourself. It's, it's a really short one, so if you like this quote, I would recommend you getting it. This is what he says about our true selves. He says, the true self is who, in reality, you are and who you are becoming. It is not something you need to construct through a process of self-improvement or deconstruct by means of psychological analysis. It's not an object to be grasped, nor is it an archetype to be actualized. It's not even some inner hidden part of you. Rather, it is your total self as you were created by God and as you are being redeemed in Christ. It is the image of God that you are, the unique face of God that has been set aside from eternity for you. We do not find our true self by seeking it. Rather, we find it by seeking God. For as I have said, in finding God, we find the truest and deepest self. The anthropological question, who am I? And the theological question, who is God? Are inseparable. It is by losing ourselves in God that we discover our true identity. There is no true life apart from a relationship to God. Therefore, there can be no true self apart from this relationship. The foundation of our identity resides in the life-giving relationship with the source of life. Any identity that exists apart from that is an illusion. And I want to be clear. Like, if you're here today and your identity is found in something other than Jesus, I'm not trying to belittle your journey. I'm saying there's something much greater than you could ever imagine or that anything this world has to offer or 
there's something that is much more unshakable. I'll put it that way. Because anything else we find our identity in can be taken away in an instant. But Jesus never can. And maybe you're here and you've tried, you know, this moniker of being true to yourself only to find that you're still searching for your true purpose and identity. Or maybe you thought you had it, right? You had your identity, you had what your life purpose was, but then it didn't turn out the way you thought it would. Maybe you're struggling with guilt or shame with something that you've done in your past or struggling with defining yourself by what other people say about you or struggling with the the fact that you're defining yourself by your legacy. But now you're, you're nearing the end of your life and your life didn't quite turn out the way you thought it would. Or even the real struggle, I think, that some are facing, especially kids and teens, but others as well, to find their identity in their gender or their sexuality. Wherever you find yourself, I'd encourage you to come to Jesus, the source of life. Find your identity in what he says about you and nothing else. It's it's only out of this secure identity in Jesus that we can flourish in this life the way that God intends it. It's his intention for us. And if you're here this morning and you are following Jesus, I just want to encourage you to resist the enemy's lies. Fight every single day to find your identity in him. That's why these times of like one-on-one time with God, reading your Bible, attending a small group, coming to the prayer meeting on Monday night, like those things are important so that we can find this every single day. We need to receive God's grace on a daily basis to be reminded of this truth. And I just want to encourage you to continue to persevere and fight that good fight. And this is, remember, so that we can be a real blessing to other people. We're we're sent on the same mission that Jesus was sent on. And he wants us to find our identity in him so that we can give the most people the greatest chance to discover his love. That we are a sent people. And this brings me to my last point, number three, The sons and daughters are set free to serve. We're set free to serve. We use our freedom to serve others. Jesus paid the tax for him and Peter, even when he didn't have to. But here, Jesus demonstrates how we are to use that freedom that God has given us in Mark 10, verse 43 through 45. But it shall be so among you, but whoever would be great among you would be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The sons and daughters of the king don't, don't use their freedom to just live a cush life. The sons and daughters of the king are set free to serve. We are loved to love, right? That's why he gives us his love. We receive, therefore we give. The truth has set us free, so we speak the truth in love to see others set free as well. We are a sent people to bring the good news of freedom found in Jesus to other people. And so my question for you, if you're a follower of Jesus, is how will you use your identity 
in Jesus, your freedom found in that to serve others this week. And we use the acronym. So the question is, we ask this to our small groups, who will you bless this week? And so it's an acronym. We can, you know, turn it out. So B, begin with prayer. Who are you praying for? Who you know needs prayer? Listen, whose struggles and successes will you take the time to listen to? How will you choose to be present in the moment with people? Just like Jesus was, instead of just moving quickly past them or being annoyed that they want to talk to you or whatever it is. Eat. Who will you share a meal with? Who will you show biblical hospitality to? Which means having strangers in your home. That's what biblical hospitality is. Who will you perhaps share a meal with someone who couldn't afford that meal otherwise? Serve. What will you do to meet the practical need for someone? And then finally, the, the final S is share stories. Who will you share your Jesus story with? Right? He, God is the judge, and he hasn't called us to be uh, the defense attorney. He's called us to be witnesses, to share with other people the freedom that we have found in Jesus. So I ask the question again, who will you bless this week? You know, I'll, I'll close by telling this story. Uh, there was a guy who came to my door, and I had just finished work, and you know how it is, like, I'm, I'm sitting on the couch, I'm like, trying to relax with my daughter, have a good, you know, watch my show, or whatever it is, and you hear the knock on the door, and you're like, oh. and our neighborhood doesn't have, like, the do not, uh, you know, solicit sign, or whatever it is, and so we have people come to our door and try to sell stuff all the time, so I open the door, and I'm like, okay, let's be nice to this guy, let's be nice, so I open the door, and he's trying to sell me windows. He goes through his whole spiel, and he's doing a great job. I can tell he's following the script that they gave him. And I'm like, look, I'm, you know, we're not interested. Thank you so much. But it's a free estimate, you know. And so, he, but he, and so he continues on. He doesn't take no for an answer. He talks for a little bit more. And I'm just like, look, like we have a contractor that we use to do all the work on our house. So thanks for coming today, but we're just really not interested. And so he stops, and he's like, okay, thank you. And in, in the middle of our conversation, he finds out that I'm a pastor. And he's like, yeah, I appreciate that, but can I just ask you a question? I'm like, sure. He's like, I'm just really struggling right now. And I'm just wondering if there's a way that you could help me, help me walk through what I've been going through. He said, a year ago, my wife divorced me, and six, six months ago, my son died. And so brought him in the house, you know, made sure he had something to drink and just heard his story a little bit more. He's also a Marine Corps veteran. And I had a chance to, to, to pray for him. He's a Marine Corps veteran who's also suffering with PTSD and has been receiving counseling for that. And he said, I, you know, I've been receiving the counseling, but I really need someone to help me spiritually. And so we exchanged numbers, and we've been trying to get together. His name's Kyle, if you can be praying for him. But I say all that to say, like, I think in a different state of mind, I could have been much more dismissive with this guy and closed the door really quickly and not told him I'm a pastor. You know, and we can have that temptation just to move past people really quickly. But that's not who Jesus has called us to be. I mean, literally, like, regardless of your personality, regardless of what you like to do or don't, to be an apprentice of Jesus of Nazareth at that time meant that he, his disciples, they followed him from town to town to literally find the people that needed compassion to show that to them. That's what their entire life was about. 
he's called us to do the same thing. Right? He hasn't called us to just receive the freedom we found in Jesus and just live with this sense of kind of spiritual wellness. Well, I'm all good now. All smiles for me. Family's good. Life's good. Job's good. And I'll just, I'll just live my life. No, he's called us, guys, to bring the freedom that we've received in him to other people. So I bring that question back again. Who will you bless this week? How will you be present in the moment to show compassion and love where it's needed? Let me pray for us. God, we love you. And we thank you for the God that you are, the God that you've demonstrated yourself to be. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather here today and worship you and to hear these wonderful truths about who you are. God, I pray, Lord, by the power of your spirit that you would come. The Bible says very clearly that the Holy Spirit is poured out on us, that we would be his witnesses. And God, I just pray that even now, Lord, that you would pour your spirit out on us so that you would give us that, that very same power to be present in the moment with people, to show compassion and love where it's needed. Lord, we need your help. And I pray, Lord, that as we go from here, and even as we're closing today's service, we sing this final song, Lord, that we would not see this as an ending moment, but a sending moment. And remember the fact that we are a sent people to bring your love and your grace. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder found in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.